Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro physique athlete, back on Swole Radio with Dr. Eric Helms, the champ, new WNBF pro. I think it's a crazy time for bodybuilding where the best scientists are also the best athletes. Today we have Eric who has had an insane season and we're going to be really getting into the details of how he got shredded and really killed it. So welcome back on the show, Eric. Thank you very much, man. That was a probably over generous uh, introduction. Best athlete in quotes, considering uh, there were six people ahead of me at WBF Worlds. But hey, I did turn pro. I did get the privilege and the honor of competing at WBF Worlds in the pro division. So I'm very, very honored to have been there at all, which is awesome. Today, we're going to be getting into all the details of Eric's season and his prep and there are going to be a lot of valuable lessons here for people who want to get shredded. So I was thinking maybe just starting all the way from the beginning and going through things in chronological order, Eric. So maybe starting off at the beginning, what was your thought process in terms of setting up and planning your prep? Yeah, so I had uh, my last season was 2019 and I got very, very lean from that. And that was a huge PR as far as my stage presentation it was the best I've ever been. And I knew that I was quite close to turning pro in 2019. I actually won a show that was a pro qualifier, but there was not enough uh, bodybuilders in attendance to award a pro card. And then in the two other INBF, uh, WBF shows I did, I placed second. So I was very, very close in 2019 and got a lot of feedback as to, you know, quote unquote, when you turn pro, not if, which was great. Um, and I knew that I wanted to get back on stage relatively soon. Um, after 2019, obviously COVID happened. So there were two years with me living in New Zealand where we couldn't even travel. So 2020 and 2021. And then once 2022 came around, I thought, you know what? I'm almost 40. I'm turning 40 in 2023. Let's make that the bodybuilding year. Um, and as we've talked about in previous episodes, I've always been a strength and physique athlete, and I've had those goals be one and the same. I'm kind of a throwback to the old school physical culturist where form follows function, and I've just been as interested in being as strong as I can be as I have been to be as, uh, you know, muscularly developed as I can be. Um, so the off-season period from 2019 to 2023 was broken up into different phases, in um, in 2019, I actually did my first strongman competitions. In 2020, I dedicated that whole year to weightlifting. And in 2021, I dedicated that whole year to powerlifting. And then in 2022, I dedicated that whole year to my off-season for bodybuilding. And what I assessed was holding me back from potentially competing, being more competitive in bodybuilding was some specific issues with my physique where I thought my symmetry needed to improve. And that was like basically my width and my X frame, the symmetry that my physique had. So I started doing uh, specialization training in 2022 to really target my middle delts and my lats to try to improve my X frame, my V taper, and to really present better specifically in the front relaxed pose, the front lat spread, um, back lat spread back relaxed which were where i felt i was i was being held back and that process was something um that required you know a higher frequency volume and effort on those muscle groups and also bringing them forward in exercise order so a lot of the principles we've talked about 
And I didn't know how successful that was. Um, I got hints of it. I thought things were improving until I started to get pretty lean later in prep. So, you know, fast forwarding to something like a June or July when I started prep in February of 2023, I started to go, oh, like these poses are looking better. So really the planning for 2023 started a few years in advance, thinking about how I'd periodize my off season between my various uh, physical culture goals and then spending 2022 on a bodybuilding focused uh, plan, specifically emphasizing uh, what I thought were my weak points. Not that I thought they were underdeveloped from a pure muscular standpoint, like if you dissected me as a cadaver and weighed out muscles, um, but really from just the way my skeletal structure um, is that I need to have even wider delts and wider lats. Um, like if you saw me in a side tricep or a side chest, my delts is actually one of my stronger muscle groups, but because I have a relatively small uh, rib cage, narrow clavicles and uh, slight bone structure, at least for bodybuilding, um, those are things that I really need to emphasize. So I successfully emphasized those and I allowed my body weight to get pretty high. So I was trying to see if I could really kind of create the right environment to support that muscle growth. And I started prep at 96 kilos, relatively high considering my stage weights around 80 or just under 80 kilos, around 175 pounds for the Americans. Um, knowing that I was that heavy, I need to give myself enough time. So I was targeting shows later in the year because I wanted to go all the way to WBF Worlds, which is the last INBF WBF show uh, of the year. And it's typically in mid to late November. So if I was to make it to WBF Worlds, uh, which was November 19th and 18th this year, I knew that I needed to not be dieting too long. So I started um, February 4th, I think like the first or second week of February. So I started my diet and I was at 96. So that was giving me a good nine months uh, plus, uh, about almost almost 10 months actually, to diet down all the way. Uh, and planning my first shows of the season in late September, early October. So kind of having a really truncated season of actually competing. I only competed over a seven week period and I did five shows in seven weeks starting on September 30th. And I had uh, all of February, March, April, May, June, July, August and September to diet down for them. So nine months of dieting, not that I was necessarily in a deficit every single day or every single week, and then about two months or seven weeks of competing at the end to hopefully get my pro card and then be able to compete as a pro. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in terms of macros and sort of your diet, what does that look like in the off season? And then what did that look like getting into prep? Yeah, I've been at this very long time. I've been lifting for 19 years and I've been competing since 2007 in my first season for my first, um, four years of, of competing starting in 2007 and all the way to 2011, even through my off seasons, I, I tracked macros and I had targets. Um, and the benefit of that was that I got basically like the matrix vision where Neo yeah. finally realizes that he's in the matrix and he can see the zeros and ones. Um, I can look at most foods, at least if I eat them regularly and I can estimate their calorie intake. I know their macro intake and I can even guess their, their, their weight. Like, uh, I did this funny experiment where my, my buddy had a scale with him because we were doing it for a nutrition study at AUT while we were doing our PhDs. And he had like three different sweet potatoes. And he was like, how much do these weigh? 
and I was within two grams of guessing their weight just looking at them. So you'd be really good at those games of guess how many jelly beans are in the jar then. Maybe, but I, the thing is, is, I don't eat enough jelly beans. Like this, this skill only extends to like the bro foods I eat. You know, like I'm less good at like estimating like a pasta dish if I go out, but I'm actually pretty good at that as well because of coaching. But uh, but anyway, so around 2012, when I moved to New Zealand, I decided, you know, I don't understand why I'm tracking anymore. Um, it is, it's not necessary, and I think in some ways it is subverting my own ability to be intuitive and be flexible because our energy expenditure varies on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I was getting so into the concept of auto-regulation for training that I was like, why aren't I auto-regulating nutrition, you know, and changing my intake based upon my needs for the day. And it's not something I necessarily recommend for novices or people who don't have the skill set. but I think for advanced athletes, they can be far more nimble and effective both off season and prep by uh, using some of these auto-regulatory nutritional approaches, which I'll discuss in a second. And that's basically the idea of using the output to inform your processes on a day-to-day basis, so biofeedback. So if I want to uh, have an appropriate calorie intake, the only information I can use to know if that's occurring is the rate of body weight change that I have over time, right? There's nothing magic about the macros that some website or a coach tells you. It's their best guess at what should result in the outcome you're after. But the more specific information that informs you as to whether you're doing it right is the output. Are you gaining weight at an appropriate rate? Are you losing weight at an appropriate rate? Are you performing well in the gym? Is your hunger well-managed or is your satiety well-managed? Sometimes is the issue in the off-season. Can you get around it? Mm-hmm. Um are you sleeping well, et cetera, et cetera? And are you having all the behaviors that are supportive and create the right environment for either muscle growth or muscle retention while dieting? You know, we're basically just muscle farmers, you know, if you think about it, you know, like we're trying to get the best crop yield possible. Yeah. So we're thinking about, you know, having the right amount of sunshine, water, and, and the right soil composition to support that. Um, but if we get too caught up in like the sales of the soil, you know, guy who visits your farm, or, or thinking too much about, you know, the, getting the, the, the perfect amount of water, we're forgetting that the thing that tells us whether we had the right amount of water, soil composition, and the right humidity or whatever, is whether or not the crops are growing, right? Mm-hmm. So as you become more advanced as an athlete, more in tune with your body and more intuitive and aware, and you're able to track trends, instead of kind of using nutrition tracking as a crutch like I was, like just hitting macros relatively blindly, um, and not thinking about my satiety signals or hunger signals or energy or all the things I talked about, um, you're actually getting in your own way and you're not unlocking your full potential. So since 2012, I've used an auto-regulated approach. So in the off-season, I'm not trying to hit specific targets for protein, calories, or macros. I'm creating sport-supportive nutrition habits. So I eat a certain number of meals per day. This is my quote-unquote default diet. I eat four meals per day. I have a post-workout shake and I have, say, you know, Greek yogurt before bed. And then the portion sizes in each one of those meals might change, but their structure always stays the same. I've got a fruit and or vegetable in each one. I've got a lean protein source. And then I have a carb and or fat source. And those are higher or lower based upon satiety performance. And the goal, am I trying to lose weight or am I trying to gain weight? Am I trying to maintain weight, et cetera? Am I in a strength competitive phase 
or am I in a bodybuilding phase, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those things are informing uh, what I'm doing and I'm using that biofeedback. So both during the off season, I am trying to gain at a steady, slow rate and checking that by looking at the scale and thinking about how satiated or how hungry I am. And then in the in season, actually when I started prep, I took the same approach, kept the same structure. And the way I started off my prep in February at 96 kilos, where I'm like super, super full, I'm, that's like my peak off season weight. I don't want to eat. I'm looking forward to dieting and my body weights, my body's doing everything it can to defend against weight gain. Right. So I'm, I'm the skinny kid trying to, 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 to be like, no, stop with all this excess body weight. You know, my body is, is fighting me trying to be 96 kilos. All I did was we started changing what restaurants we would go out to the few times a week we'd eat out. So pizza is no longer on the table. Indians no longer on the table. We're doing things like Japanese or Thai. I'm just making healthier choices. Um, and then in, my, in the meals where I'm eating at home, uh, I'm just changing what I'm doing as far as the portion sizes and the things that I'm including, lower fat options, um, you know, potatoes instead of rice, things that are just going to bring the overall carb and fat count down, maintain the protein count. Um, and then just eating to the point where I'm not full at the end of meals anymore, but just feeling satisfied. And dude, in the first like week, I dropped like a kilo and a half, you know, mm. most of that just being bloat and water. But that easily got me down without actually tracking or having intention to do anything like that. And also just making sure that my step count was at least, say, 7,000 steps per day, but no intentional cardio unless I couldn't get out. It was raining. Then I would do some on the rower at home. That dropped me all the way down to under 200 pounds from being at like 216. So I lost 15, 16, 17 pounds just with that without tracking whatsoever. Uh, and that occurred relatively rapidly. Um I think by April, I was under 200 pounds. So just in two months, that was the first phase of prep with, without really any tracking. Yeah. And yeah, I really like that kind of approach where I think that often the, the, your initial diet changes of just changing your food selection and just ultimately just changing your attention about things and trying like just cutting out those unnecessary fats and sugars will automatically get people losing weight and yep. it doesn't have to be as drastic as some people think where you can almost skip a step I feel where you kind of want especially in prep when you're an advanced bodybuilder you want to take these stepwise gradations downward as gently as possible like you want to be dieting on as many calories as possible and I think that's a yep. great way to start absolutely and I think even more so than the than dieting on the most amount of calories as possible is simply preserving as much willpower and psychological and physiological um, energy. You want to incur the least amount of perceived and actual fatigue as possible to get to your goal, which means that you can actually be pretty damn aggressive out of the gates, but you don't need to be restrictive out of the gates, right? So at my peak off-season weight, I'm having to do all kinds of things to even get up to 96 kilos, like including pizza regularly in my diet or including foods that are high in fats and very hyper palatable and eating desserts regularly. Um, because to get my body up over 200 pounds, it's hard. You know, I'm not looking forward to eating Greek yogurt before bed when I'm 96 kilos. When I'm 86 kilos and lighter, I'm like, oh, Greek yogurt before bed, you know, so it's, it's very different. <laughs> and um so there was a point where I did start tracking calories or just hitting certain calorie ranges. 
And that's more so because it required a more minute approach to actually keep losing weight. Um, and the uh, once your body is kind of adapting the other way, it starts. Be, it, it becomes obvious that you have to be in a tighter range to make progress. And being um, more intuitive on your on your on your nutrition means that you have a little more variance in your intake. So what we eventually shifted to, and Alberto was helping me with this this contest prep. Mm. He became increasingly more involved as we got closer to stage weight and needed to think about preserving things. And when I would want to push a little harder, he would either go, "Yeah, that's a good idea," or "No, I don't think we need to yet," because pacing is huge. Mm -hmm. um, Pacing is important in every sport and bodybuilding, arguably even more so. If I need to get all the way from 96 kilos to say 78, 79 to be shredded and compete, recover, not overshoot, have a productive off season and do all the things that I need to, to be as successful as possible, I really have to think about fatigue management. So as we got further and further along, we went to what I would still describe as an auto-regulated approach, but we knew where we were at number wise. So we started having like five low days, two high days and thinking about, uh, where we'd place my most important training sessions for my, for my, my most important muscle groups, like my lats and my delts, my upper body. Right. And, uh, we would have those occur after refeed days, you know, so like, uh, my, my Saturday session and my Monday session became like the most important ones. And I was refeeding on Saturday, Sunday. Right. Um, and then, we would also make sure that, you know, when's a good time to strike as far as getting in some deficit days, dropping some body weight. Um, Monday is a great day to have a have an aggressive low day after two high days, right? Because mm. you're going to feel fine no matter what. Also, Friday, psychologically, is a good day to have a very high low day because what's coming mm -hmm. tomorrow? Your refeed day, right? And then you think about, okay, what training can I do when I'm on lower energy, right, on that Friday? I should be smart about what I do there. So... I had a variable low day intake uh, that changed throughout prep. Uh, early stages now, now that we're kind of moving into say like middle of the year, say May through August, um, my low days were between like 1600 to 2100 calories. And then I would have two 25 to 2700 calorie days on my refeeds. Eventually that became low days that were like 1400 to 1700 calories on those five days. What were the timeframes for those changes? Yeah, that probably, I started getting down to 1400 to 1700 calories in late August, late August, early September. My first show was September 30th. Hmm. So uh, the only big pushes I had were the two weeks prior to September 30th and then the two weeks prior to October 28th, which was Australia. That was where I won my pro card. So I competed September 30th, October 7th, October 14th, then October 28th. And that's where I got my pro card. So I did three shows in a row, back to back to back Saturdays, had one week off competing and then competed. And then I had three weeks to WBF Worlds. So in the two weeks leading up to that first show, we dug hard, skipped a refeed series. So basically I had, you know, two weeks of low days and then just used the peak to be my quote unquote refeed into that show. And then I just ran low days and backloaded or kind of like mid mid backloaded for each one of those successive three shows in a row and then dieted all the way through and then backloaded again for the Australia show. So I got some digging done and I was actually getting leaner between shows and I looked better from show to show to show to show. 
So, um, yeah, I didn't really touch down into that 1400 to 1700 calorie range until I was in mid September. And then I was having some like 1900, 1800, 1700 calorie low days and been mostly just on Monday and Friday with slightly higher intakes prior to that. So like if we looked at say August, I was probably around 1600 calories on Monday, Friday, 2,500 calories on the weekends. And then between 1,600 to 1,900 calories on Tuesday through Thursday. And the ranges, I think, are very important because, like I said, there's variation in your energy expenditure, your hunger levels, what time of day you're training, your social demands on you. Um, and Berto and I, Berto wanted to leverage my experience, and I knew I'd benefit from that as well. So he kind of joked. He was like, hey, man, you always got a, you know, like a banana or an apple behind glass. You can break in, in in case of emergency and have an extra, you know, 25 grams of carbs, 100 calories, no problem. Right. Hmm. Because when you're experienced enough, you know, there's an appropriate level of hunger, lethargy, food focus and fatigue that you should feel. When you're an early stage competitor, you just think this is supposed to be hard and I have a lot of willpower and I'm just going to put, you know, pedal the metal and do it. You don't know about pacing. You just sprint until you fall down and then you get back up and you sprint until you fall down. and You forget that each time you fall down, you're incurring these injuries that you're going to have to heal from. And if it doesn't happen during, you know, in prep, it's going to happen in the off season, right? And the fatigue you incur during prep is, is going to have a negative impact on something else and typically uh, that could be your, your personal life or the, the subsequent off season, or it could even result in binging in the middle of the contest season itself and actually harm your, your, your competitive status. It's very individual. So pacing, like I said, very important. And one of the strategies we used for that, uh, you know, later in prep, besides the kind of more intuitive auto-regulated approach earlier was to just have an auto-regulated energy intake based upon how I should feel. So there were days where it was supposed to be a low day on Monday and I'm going for 14 to 1600 calories and I had 1700 because I'm like, wow, I just feel way too crappy on, on Monday. This is not the way I want to start the week, you know, and it shouldn't be this way. Um, and then, oh man, I feel great. And then I'm able to push to the lower end of the calorie calories on Tuesday. Right. Mm. Um, and there were also a few diet breaks. I think we took two or, or three, uh, during this t time period, I actually did a powerlifting meet in June. So I took a diet break the week of uh, or it was July, excuse me, in July. So I took a diet break the week of, of the competition to make sure that I could be as strong as I was. And it was a good timing for it anyway. Um, we took a diet break um, in, I want to say, the second week of September before we did the, the two weeks of pushing into the show just to make sure I was fresh and ready for that. Um, and then I also spent the last 10 days before Worlds because uh, I had three weeks going into Worlds. So I had basically, I split it in half pushing to get even tighter after I got my pro card for half of that time period and then eating at maintenance for the last 10 days going into worlds to really get the best combination of fullness and leanness. So all in all, while there was 41 weeks of dieting, there were two intentional diet, diet breaks of a week long. Uh, and then there was another, you know, four peak weeks, which were just reshifted around refeeds. Um, and, um, you know, and one of those quote unquote peak weeks had 10 days at, at maintenance. So I had like four weeks of diet breaks, if you will, out of those 41 weeks. Uh, and I was using refeeds on, uh, you know, two days per week for the last half of the, the prep. So it, it certainly wasn't all push, you know, it was definitely push, ease back, push, ease back, you know, create a, 
a, a deficit, fill it back up. And that's something that you learn as a coach or as an experienced competitor. If you're in a division um, and you're also someone who isn't like supernaturally lean, if you're in a division that requires a lot of leanness and you're not someone who's just naturally lean and it's an easy process, you have to learn that if you want to stay in the support, stay in the sport and also be someone who competes uh, with elite levels of conditioning. So that's kind of what it looked like for me. Yeah, I really like what you said about pacing. I think that's it's something that as you get more advanced, you really start thinking about it. Where for me, when I when I'm prepping, I'll count macros almost more so to make sure I don't eat too little. Mm. That's that's actually the the issue that I see. Where I, like as a bodybuilder, you can just tank. You feel like you can just tank anything, right? And it's just like you you want to go at it and restrict calories and if. And the, the worry is actually like losing too rapidly for me. Yeah. What kind of rates of loss were you targeting it? And did that change at different parts of the prep? Yeah, absolutely. So it was pretty quick initially. So if you think about it, actually, I'm going to pull up my scale so I can tell you exactly how much I lost. So I have a nice little app here, Happy Scale, which shows the logbook. So if we go all the way back, so like I said, started on February 4th. I was 96 kilos on the 4th of February, and it's 94.8 the next day. So just literally just starting, and I lost a kilo right at the gates. Um, by the end of February, so that's you know about four weeks of or, or three weeks of dieting, I was averaging around 92.5. So I lost uh, almost nine pounds in the first month, mm. which sounds like a really really fast pace, but again, when you're super high in body fat. Um, not super high in body fat, but when you're at your peak body fat and when probably three pounds of that is just like water, it's nothing crazy. So I was probably dropping a little under two pounds per week to start things off, which is about slightly over 1% of my body weight to kick things off of true body fat losses. Um, and then by the end of March, so another month, month later, I was down to 90.5. So uh, now we're seeing a slowdown in weight. I lost about you know five pounds in the next month. So now we're down to slightly over a pound a week versus two pounds a week in that second month. And that pace was more or less maintained by the end of April. I was down to 97. So again, you know, losing two to three kilos per month. Uh, and then by the end of May, I was in the high 85s, right? So slowing down a little bit. And then by the end of June, I was in the mid 83s. By the end of July, I was in the high 82. So at this point, right around July, now we're seeing me slowing down to more like half a pound a week at mm. most. And then in August, you know, I went from an average of being in the high 82s at the end of July down to being in the low 82s by the end of August. So now I lost just over like basically a pound. Um, and that that's the kind of pacing you should see at the end when you're moving from like for a male competitive bodybuilder, you're moving from like 8% body fat to 6% body fat. You can only liberate so much fat at one time. And if you're losing a lot of weight, like you said, it's probably not weight you want to be losing. So um, end of September. So uh, when I actually got on stage, I was in the low 80s. So um, yeah. And then throughout October, I got down to the high 78s. And that was my like my lowest weigh-ins. Uh, I think the lowest weigh-in I saw on the scale might have been 174 pounds or 78 point something. 
So yeah, if you look at my rate of loss, it definitely slowed down intentionally as I got leaner and leaner and leaner. So it was closer to a 1% or slightly higher, 1.2% of body weight loss uh, per week until I got down to, you know, probably, you know, 200 pounds-ish. And then from, you know, 200 pounds down to the next phase, it was, you know, closer to 1% or just under 1%. And then eventually towards the end of prep, I'm losing 0. 0.2 to 0.3% of my body weight per week. Um, yeah. And then the end, I'm actually maintaining. Like I wasn't, I was, you know, increasing. Like if we look at November, and again, I competed on the 19th, the, my body weight dropped. I hit, in the, I hit to the, I got down to the high 78s and then I jumped back up to the low 79s. So I basically put back on um, almost a pound of fullness. Um, from during those 10 days where I ate a maintenance while looking leaner uh, from my WBF Pro Card win, which is on the 28th of, of October, moving into uh, the 19th of November when I did my pro debut at Worlds in the middleweight pro division. So we dieted for like 10 days just to get a little bit tighter, hit a peak level of leanness, and went, all right, let's, let's kick it up. We don't want to risk um, losing fullness ir- 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 irrecoverably. So... Yeah, I agree with that strategy of having a bit more of an aggressive rate of loss at the very beginning, like in the first month. Yeah, at the very beginning of my prep, I'll lose at actual similar rates to when I'm mini cutting. And just Mm -hmm. because your body fat's higher. And for me, since I like using a cyclical approach with refeeds and diet breaks, I feel that that gets you back into, well, has you feeling okay, even like that you're not damaging yourself for the later stages of prep. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. Yeah. It's, it's, it's easy to lose two pounds a week. Um, when you are high in body fat motivated, it's early on and all the indicators that you have should be telling you that you're not in incurring fatigue or, or decrements from that. I was getting stronger, you know, like my powerlifting meet mm-hmm. that I did in July mm-hmm. where I had dropped all the way from 96 to weighing in at 83, but probably being like 83.5 and needing to do like a gut cut only no water manipulation really. Um, my squat and my deadlift went up, my bench went down, but that probably had more to do with, you know, losing so much of my butt mass and, and body mass that it's traveling a much longer distance. So yeah, performance metrics were up. I was still sleeping relatively well. And during that diet break into the powerlifting meet, I felt 95% normal compared to the off season. So that's the way it should be. You know, if you can coast to being only say, you know, 5% over stage weight in terms of your body mass, you're in a great position because no matter what, it gets hard to move from like me moving from 83 kilos to 79 or 78 kilos. Those are the, that that's way harder, even though it's only a four kilo loss in body weight compared to the 13 kilo loss of body weight to get to 83. Mm. So I think that's something that people don't understand unless they've been really, really lean. Um, and if you crush yourself to get to the point where now you need to diet, uh, like for real, um, that's going to go really poorly because you're basically entering the hardest part of the race with an empty gas tank. So I think that's, again, that importance of pacing. And that's what it looks like is, is striking when the iron's hot and then pulling back, uh, when, when, when it's, it's hardest. And I think a lot of people do it the opposite way. They're too complacent early in prep because they can be and they'll still lose weight. 
Um, and then they are trying to crush themselves out of a sense of urgency that they didn't need to have if they had simply been uh, more assertive earlier on when it was easy to be. Mm -hmm. And what happened to your cardio? Yeah, so cardio, I didn't really traditionally do like proper cardio. Um, I was really just basically anytime I had too much sedentary work in the day due to my university work, mass or, or 3DMJ or writing or doing podcasts, um, I would do cardio to make up for a lack of steps. But what I initially did was, all right, okay, I'm going to hit, you know, at least 7,000 steps per day uh, to kick things off, which is actually where I want to keep it in the off season. And I have thus far, cause it's a good healthy place to be between six to 8,000 steps. So that's where I started between six to eight K that was the beginning of prep. And, uh, anytime I couldn't hit that number, then I would do a 20 to 30 minute, um, relatively high intensity session on my rower at home. And most of the time it's just cause it was raining. That, that was what was going on instead of going on walks, which I like to do. Um, and then once we got to say, uh, July, August, right after I finished my, my powerlifting meet, we moved that up to around, uh, 10 to 12 K steps. And then for my striking periods, uh, actually when I was competing and trying to get tighter, we were up as high as 12 to 15 K steps. So, and then after I got tight enough and I won my pro car, we brought it back down to 10 to 12. And then finally for the 10 days leading up into worlds, we brought it all the way back down to six to eight K. So hardest, hardest phase of prep was, um, 1400 to 1600 calories on low days, 12 to 15,000 steps. But again, this was only a two, two week periods where I did this. Um, and most of prep was, uh, 10,000 to 12,000 steps and 1400 to 1700 calories with two high days per week of 2,500. Um, and then, like I said, the digging phases, we just pulled the refeeds out, kicked the step count up a little bit. Um, and then for the eating up phase, uh, I was at. Uh, six to eight thousand steps 2100 calories every day without proper refeeds because we didn't need them um and yeah i was just doing steps never any proper calorie uh, no, never proper cardio unless i needed to and towards the end of prep i actually got a gym membership across the street at the y so i didn't necessarily need to do the rower which i found a little more tedious and like if it was raining i would just get on the treadmill there but most of the time i was just walking and because i'm in the southern hemisphere our summer starts in like december so it's starting to get nicer throughout the year as we moved, uh, you know, out of, out of winter, but, uh, but yeah, there's still Auckland's a, a unpredictable weather location. So it rains a lot. Yeah. And touching on what you said, I thought it was interesting how you came up with those, you know, strategies like having digging days on Mondays or Fridays. Are there any other sort of dietary manipulations that you might bring in for yourself or for other people that can help with prep in general that, may not necessarily change the balance in terms of the overall calories, but could help people in terms of success. Yeah, I think the biggest ones are just um, thinking about the timing of when you train and the timing mm. of when you have larger meals versus smaller meals. Mm. So I, I'm a big fan of having larger breakfasts for most athletes. Mm. Um, I think that allows you to be agile throughout the day. Mm -hmm. um, the only time I would say that's not the case is when they are gonna be training later at night consistently. And then you probably wanna have a larger meal kind of say two hours before that. But generally, you don't know how the day is gonna go. 
but you have a lot of calories left to play with. Having a pretty big breakfast, you know, let, let's say you've got 1,800 calories to play with. A 600-calorie breakfast, yeah, it's a third of your energy. Um, and then you might have a, you know, like a post-workout shake and then a lunch. And then I think, you know, your dinner, you can kind of start to taper down because then you're just going to go to sleep. Um, and a lot of athletes think that if they eat a lot of food before bed, they'll sleep better. But I, I noticed it has more to do with their total energy intake rather than where it's placed. You can certainly try the strategy. Let me have a big meal before bed because I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night. But I noticed that it has much more to do with energy availability in the athletes who suffer from sleep. And it's, I think, a lot more challenging to spend most of your day in a deficit than eat a lot of food when you're going to go to bed anyway. And it doesn't support gym performance quite as much, especially if you're training earlier. But you can always make up for things later in the day. Like if you start with a big breakfast and you're like, actually, I feel great today. This can be a big deficit day. Then you just cut back on on your lunch, cut back on your dinner. You know, you hit the lower end of your kind of your auto-regulated energy intake, like I was talking about. Um, but if you start the day off, like already crushing yourself at breakfast, um, that can create a rougher day than it even needs to. So... I generally recommend people when they're thinking about auto-regulating their energy intake is to do that by pulling from meals later in the day, um, you know, and having a salad with a lean protein as your as your as your dinner, and then just you know calling it there and going to bed. Um, you're not dealing with as much decision time or time when you need to be social or time when you're typically getting steps. So it's kind of just matching the needs of the day to your energy intake. Hmm. Um, the other thing I'd recommend is 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 staying consistent, being busy, and not obsessing about prep. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest tool that anyone can have to make prep easier is just have a full life outside of bodybuilding. You know, don't take time off from work because you're getting close to competition. Um, you know, like if you have a busy job that has a lot of demands from you, pace your prep. You know, and then you won't. You can eat more. You know, just make sure that you're actually giving yourself enough time so you don't have to diet hard while your, you know, life demands are high. Um, I traveled to coach at IPF Worlds in Malta, um, the Sheffield in, in the UK. I did, uh, you know, two weeks of filming while, or a week of filming in Texas and traveled all over with, with Omar and Brandon for the Iron Culture documentary. Um, I went and traveled to Mexico with Berto and we did a seminar there in April um, and you know, I traveled for, for two of my shows, um, sorry, three of my shows. I went to the States and one, I went to Australia, which is not that bad from New Zealand. So I was, you know, presenting at, at AUT, supervising my students. I, I had students graduating. I was going to the AUT graduation. I was running student workshops. Um, I applied for promotion. Like, you know, these, these are all things that I did. You know, we, we had to restructure you know, the, the, the marketing apparatus behind mass as we were, you know, separating from stronger by science, I'm working on the third edition of my books, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My life did not slow down or stop at all for bodybuilding. And in fact, I dived in more because that's time I'm not thinking about the process or being food focused or feeling lethargic, um, because I've got stuff to do. So I think, um, not focusing on prep any more than you need to is I think critical. And um, being strategic and placing refeeds and diet breaks at times when you may need the energy in life, I think, is, is also quite important. So, um, yeah, uh, all of those strategies and maintaining a similar meal structure. So my 
my diet to an observer looks very similar in prep as it does in the off season. You know, I, I go to a cafe for breakfast with my wife. That's our time to get a walk in and connect personally. Yeah. During prep, I'm getting, you know, two poached eggs on toast with a side of, you know, smoked salmon and mushrooms and, you know, and, and spinach. It's mostly vegetables, with a little bit of fat and protein. And then in the off season, I'm getting like a bowl of porridge, a side of salmon and something else. Right. So, but it's still me going to a restaurant and getting mm-hmm. kind of a breakfast archetype and doing the same thing. I'm not eating outside of my normal meal times. Lunch looks basically identical. It's, you know, carrot, fruit, protein source, and a carb source. And then during, you know, contest prep, it's one less fruit, smaller carb source, you know, like, mm-hmm. but it's still the same time, same general structure. And then dinner, you know, it, it's, you know, a vegetable and a protein source and not a whole lot else during prep. And then it's just, you know, a less lean protein source. And I'm adding carbs and fats to that in, in, in contest prep or sorry, in the off season. And before I go to bed, it's non-fat Greek yogurt and during prep, or it's actually, uh, you know, includes carbs or is a full fat Greek yogurt in the off season, but it feels the same. It looks the same. Mm. It's very easy to transition between the two. It doesn't lead itself to, 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 you know, post contest binging. It's very easy for me to just go about my day and make small manipulations to allow myself to reach my goals. Um, and to the casual observer, I'm just always living the quote unquote bodybuilding lifestyle. And more importantly, it doesn't fatigue me. And I'm so used to it. And that's what you want to get to is where these, not necessarily the, the quantities of, uh, of macros or energy intake is the same, but the habitual process is the same and it feels habitual. It is not a stretch for you mentally. It doesn't require willpower to just eat in this manner. And then all of a sudden, uh, it's it's no problem in the off-season to have that more kind of bro lifestyle or, or bodybuilding lifestyle. Because truly, you make it very hard on yourself if you go from YOLOing it in the off-season to being very strict in the in-season. And those athletes are the ones who really struggle with post-contest weight gain, having to diet a lot of weight off in the in-season and bouncing between these extremes that really makes the sport unhealthy. Um, so I think uh, that's quite critical and those things make a huge difference. And that's why we have like the default diet course that we teach at a 3D Muscle Journey. And that's why we have the recovery diet and we talk about prep positioning. All these things connect and go hand in hand so that you can set someone up for sustainability within the sport and enjoyment rather than feeling like they're getting pushed and pulled by society's demands and the sports demands yeah that's really powerful and looking at how the habits that you set in the off season are actually what set set you up for success in the prep season where 100 having those i like how you gave examples because it makes it very clear that the base structure is identical it's just you're swapping out the the size of the portion and the type of the food that is in that what even though it's still from the same food category and exactly like last year in prep, I remember I was planning to start prep the week, like the next week. And then I was just driving home on like a Thursday night. And I was just like, you know what, I'm going to start prep tomorrow. And I just like took a turn on the road, went to the grocery store instead, got a few like foods and then just came home and started prep the next day. Like if you have those structures in place, it can be a fairly seamless transition and it'll make it a lot easier those you know transition times well said 
what did your training look like and how did that evolve throughout prep? Yeah, that, that changed pretty interestingly and it probably won't even be that way in the future as I, you know, venture into trying to become a competitive pro, but I had the goal of, uh, competing in an 83 kilo weight class powerlifting meet in the middle of prep. I did North Audacious. islands in July. Yes, sir. And it went well. So to do that, up to the point in July, my prep looked like a minimum effective dose powerlifting program kind of bolted on to a hypertrophy program. So I was training uh, five days per week and doing my very similar approach that I need to as a bodybuilder who has, you know, more dominant legs uh, and the structure where I need to put more energy into my upper body to look balanced. So I had, you know, five days per week where I was training. Every day I'm doing something my upper body with an emphasis on the delts and the lats. Uh, and then my lower body training was basically getting quote unquote taken care of by the minimum dose powerlifting I was doing. Mm. So working up to singles, um, twice per week on the bench, one to two times per week on the squat and once per week on the deadlift and doing a little bit of back off work and then just sprinkling in, not really sprinkling in doing a whole lot of calf work. Uh, mm -hmm. pretty much every day because that's a, a weaker part of my lower body and then doing just a little bit like three sets of leg extensions and leg curls and that was my ex extent of my lower body training uh, and then just moving those loads up on those singles and those back offsets slowly as I was able to or basically trying to hold the line on bench press um, and then as I got really close to the powerlifting comp then I just shifted to kind of like maintenance on everything bodybuilding related and went through a proper like three to four week peaking cycle for powerlifting. Uh, and then once that period was over, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Like I wasn't sure how I'd feel. And I was open to maybe being really excited about competing as an 83 in the future as a powerlifter, or maybe going, hey, you know, I got super motivated by winning my pro card, competing at Worlds, and I just want to go all in with, 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 with bodybuilding. But I didn't know where I would be. And I couldn't predict which Eric Helms would come out, you know, the, the powerlifter or the bodybuilder at the end of the season. So after I did the meet, I went to a true minimum effective dose to maintain strength or just not degrade too much. And I was literally just working up to a single hmm. on the squat bench and deadlift once per week and actually every other week on the deadlift um, and even getting down to just maybe squatting every other week. And that was enough to maintain my strength. And I did that from uh, late July all the way up till, um, September when I actually started competing and then I had to travel, you know, I'm flying to Christchurch to compete in a competition Then I'm going to the States for two weeks then I'm coming back and I only have two weeks before I fly to Australia. Then I have three weeks before I fly to worlds. So during that seven week actual competition period, I probably only did three sets of squats, two sets of deadlifts, and maybe four or five sets of bench in total in a competition form. Uh, because that at that point i like i'm not gonna i didn't want to bring my knee sleeves and my belt and all my stuff with me traveling um and i was just really trying to maximize per, my performance and minimize fatigue as i was doing these you know back to back to back peak weeks right um so that's how my training evolved it, it went from being uh power buildery with more of a focus on bodybuilding to power buildery with more of a focus on powerlifting acutely before the meet to then barely power buildery with just like a maintenance focus on the comp, the, the comp lifts with most of the focus on bodybuilding to then literally the bare minimum I thought I could get away with to not backslide too far if I decided to take powerlifting on 
after this bodybuilding season. So I wouldn't have to regain a bunch of strength. And then as I thought was one of the possibilities of what my motivation would do, I got my pro card, I competed at worlds and now I'm so motivated by the idea of trying to place higher in the pros and, and, you know, somehow make even more gains now that I've exceeded my expectations, um, that I've gone all in on bodybuilding and gone totally monogamous. I haven't done a single squat bench or deadlift in a competition format since my season ended a month ago. I've been doing a pure bodybuilding program and it's going to be like that for the next couple of years. So, um, yeah, I just needed to keep the door open though, because I wasn't sure what I wanted. I really, really enjoyed competing in powerlifting back in July and I was really pleased at how strong I could be. And I thought, you know what, I could be a decent 83, mm. but from a competitive outset, like the best version of Eric Helms as a power lifter is still like a, you know, a B minus. Right. But I just got my pro card and competed at worlds and, and placed seventh out of ninth. And I think I can do better. So, um, honestly, I just think my potential is looking pretty versus being strong or <laughs> way different, you know? Um, I think there's some world where I could total 630, 640 in 83 kilos, but the best 83 kilo lifters are totaling over 800 kilos. Um, and, you know, in natural bodybuilding, however, I actually got to stand next to the best natural bodybuilders on the planet. I got to hit some shots next to, you know, Benjamin Schuster um, and, and Malcolm Cooper and Doug King and, uh, you know, Frederick Ibsen and Augustino Russo. You know, these these guys are the top five middleweights in the world who have won pro shows um, and, you know, went on and have won, you know, world championship in, in, in their weight class or won the Mr. Universe title, and I'm getting compared against them. So um, that's like the equivalent as if I was an 83 who was totaling in, you know, the mid 700s. And yeah, maybe I'd think about it a little differently if I had another 100 kilos on my total, but I but I don't. So the reality is, is that I'm just not built to be an elite uh, power lifter, but I've got a little taste of being, you know, at least in the same stratosphere as an elite bodybuilder, and I really want to take it as far as I can. So I think at this stage in my career, um, training for 19 years, being 40 years old and, and finding that there is an actual cost, like for me to maintain my strength, that takes energy away from me building my physique mm -hmm. and for me to build my strength at this stage, it actually is too much for me to really do more than maintain my physique. So I think that phasic approach at the very least, it takes time away from when I could dedicate to one or the other. So uh, I think I'm one of the few people who's gotten to the point where I have to choose if I really want to optimize my performance moving forward. While, you know, 99% of people, they can get to 90% of their strength and size potential with a combined program. But that's just no longer me, which is, um, I don't know if it's a sad thing. I think it's kind of exciting. I've been waiting for it. <laughs> all, all these years, whenever I listen to a podcast with you and you're talking about switching back, I'm just like, Eric, just double down on bodybuilding you're gonna crush it so well i hope you're I, right brother so i think this is an exciting time along that vein in terms of balancing strength and hypertrophy and how obviously you had some form of this in terms of phasing out some of your powerlifting training where you would have reduced fatigue through that do you do any other sort of periodization in terms of your training like for example swapping out more fatiguing exercises for less fatiguing exercises as prep goes on. Yeah, I did absolutely do that. So, um, the, 
some of the things I, I did was, for example, as I phased out the power lifts, I shifted that volume towards um, towards machine-based movements. So I started doing a little more leg press as the squat volume came down. Um, and I started doing uh, weighted back extensions uh, as the as the deadlift volume came down. And those, you know, similarly effective, um, but just so much less fatiguing, you know. Um, and another thing I did is I, once I really shifted away from powerlifting, like I said, I was training five days a week. I actually then started training six days per week during prep. And that sounds crazy, but the sessions got shorter. Mm. So I started moving from like five sessions that lasted an hour to an hour and a half, depending upon if I had deadlifts and squats in there and had to work up to a single, because that takes time if you're reasonably strong, to doing like six 45-minute sessions. Mm. Um, and that just felt even easier to recover from. Because during prep, like just doing anything hard for more for an hour is is hard. You know, whether it's bicep curls or leg press or, or a squat. So I was coming in, you know, just uh, Monday through Saturday and training and just splitting things up in, in, in the way that I could basically make each individual session as easy as possible while still getting the same total amount of volume and total amount of effort, quote unquote, under the curve uh, for the whole week. So, yeah, I was uh, I moved from to do like doing only like five, four, four to six exercises per session and then just doing six sessions that lasted 45 minutes. And I found that really helped during prep. And if there was a day where I was feeling really high energy, if it was a refeed day or the day after the refeed day, then I would get like some more of that volume in that I either would not feel I needed to do later in the week. Um, or if I was feeling great later in the week, then I would just, you know, hit a slightly higher than normal volume because I felt I could recover from it. So there was a certain amount of auto-regulated periodization there. Um, and it was also a time for me to explore because I started to get more and more of a sense that I did want to really double down on bodybuilding of, okay, what could my, what can I sustain? What can I handle? What will my split look like moving forward? And I started planning in August, my post-competition split. Um, but now I've actually, uh, you know, I, and I did that for a couple of weeks uh, already. And then the last, I'm into my second week of off-season programming by Brian Miner, who is my, I, I brought on as my off-season coach. And I'm going to be updating the 3DMJ YouTube channel with our coaching call where he designed my split. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited about what that's going to look like moving forward when I can actually properly recover and I'm in a surplus and I'm not at, you know, 5% body fat. Yeah, that helps having calories around. 100%. Was anything different in this prep compared to previous preps? It was very similar to 2019 on the whole. There was pacing, but I think the difference between 2019 and this prep was that my pacing was a little different uh, just because of my life demands. Mm. Um, so in 2019, I had a whole lot going on, even more than all the crap that I studied this time. I was doing more traveling, more speaking. It was pre-COVID, you know, so it was kind of like at the height of some of my speaking engagements. Um, it was also the first round of PhD students who'd come to study with me came out in uh, early 2019, late 2018. And I was a new supervisor. You know, now I'm, I've had four years of experience, five years of experience. Um, so there was a lot of demands on me and I needed to think about how to pace my life a little bit differently. So I did a couple things. I did, I did a proper prep positioning diet in 2018 so that when I started my prep in 2019, I was leaner. 
So I started that prep about 10 pounds lighter than I did this time. Um, and I also noticed in 2019 that I tapped out, like, uh, I, I made it from mid December dieting to August. I was like, okay, similar amount of dieting that I did this year, but I went, okay. I like, I started to really get fatigued at that point. So a, I need to try to manage my overall fatigue levels better. And then B, I need to think about counting back from where I want to get to. So, okay, I'll, I'll give myself the same dieting timeline, but back from worlds. And that's why it shows like all the shows that were in late September and later. So I could start in February and know that at the very least I'd be able to make it to worlds. So that was a start, slightly different planning element. And I also realized that I had a lot of time to eat up in 2019. So I hit peak condition in May and I competed all the way to August. Mm. So I didn't need all that time. And, um, while it was great to eat up, I don't know that I needed like seven weeks of eating up. Right. So, um, this time I only had 10 days of eating up into the show and that was like sufficient. I still brought my, my literal best physique to the stage ever at worlds. Um, and because I preserved, you know, my energy and didn't have any hard, hard digging phases, I didn't need as much time eating up. I don't think. But in uh, 2019, I had this really, really intense period of work in uh, June. I had a lot going on, uh, or rather, sorry, uh, yeah, June. And I knew that I would not be able to diet effectively there. So I intentionally told Berto, look, I want to crush myself in May, you know, like let's go really, really hard and get shredded in May and then just eat up from there. And he was like, I don't advise this. You know, you like I did a show in April, like I was in like legally shredded condition in 2019 in April when I did the Polynesian Muscle Mayhem. I wasn't in peak, peak, peak condition, but I had like some glute dents. You know, I definitely belonged on stage. Um, and then to get to that elite level of conditioning that I achieved for my shows in July and August, the smart thing would have been to do on paper, just slow, slowly pace it out, get shredded and, you know, end of June and then have a a week of eating up into the first show and then just keep that going all the way through August. But instead what I did was, um, we took late April to the end of May and just battered myself into the ground until I was, you know, shredded and barely moving and thinking because I had no responsibilities during that period. And I could, and that was the best choice given that environment. Um, and then I ate up throughout June and I was present and able to do all the things and I had to travel for multiple conferences and then I traveled to the States and I was kept eating up and I kept looking better and better. But I think that did incur some fatigue that was just unavoidable. And it also required me to stay shredded for longer. Mm. So I think the pacing was better this time. And I do think the prep position diet was great. But if I was to do it again, like I would have not had that really hard digging phase in May. And then I would have started my prep instead of in mid-December like in February, because I just, I just didn't need all that time. Uh, and then I think I would have been able to actually make it even further like I did this year. Uh, so this year I didn't do the prepositioning diet. I started heavier, but I had plenty of time to get ready, even though I started 10 pounds heavier. So I think probably the ideal combination, if I was going to learn anything from 2019 and this year is to do both, you know, don't start prep at 96 kilos, start at like 88, 89, and then start dieting in, in like April, you know, if I was going to do this year over again. Um, so yeah, and that's kind of the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. And then transitioning and looking forward, what do you expect to see in terms of changes to your physique for over the next couple of years? And how do you plan to do that? 
That's a great question, dude. So here's the funny thing. You know, I've spent literally the last 12 years intentionally undertraining my legs because they were always so dominant and just kind of mm-hmm. letting weightlifting, strongman, powerlifting, and some leg extension, leg curls and calf raises, like three to six sets per week, take care of the lower body. And there was even a period um, where I had to get hip surgery, uh, which I got in 2017, where I just saw how little I needed to do to maintain leg size. Um, And what that resulted in was me getting finally a balanced physique, in addition to doing some specialization work in 2022 on my lats and delts. And that's why I was able to win a pro card. That was the difference between 2019 and, and, and this year, was that I brought the same level of conditioning and an improved symmetry by uh, improving my delts and my lats. And yeah, that really, really fixed my balance and made me a competitive pro and much more complete. Um, Sorry, maybe a competitive amateur to get my pro card and make me much more complete. And the feedback I got from all the 3DMJ coaches and even some of the, um, the judges was not, you need to bring up X thing or you need to get leaner or blah, blah, blah. It was, you just need to be bigger. And when you look at me in that pro lineup, the first thing you notice is that I'm... I'm the tallest guy in the class, you know, like, so I'm just tall. It's a middleweight. And mm-hmm. in an ideal world, I would just put on 10 pounds of muscle and be a heavyweight, but that's probably not realistic. <laughs> if I've been training for 19 years, um, you know, I might put on some muscle mass because now that I'm balanced, uh, the feedback I actually got was you need to bring up your legs and your body. Like the mm. feedback I got from all the different coaches was essentially that the only muscle groups that I don't need to work on are like my abs and my calves and maybe my biceps. But, um, so mission calves worked, it did work. And it's more (laughs) like, listen, your calves improved, but nobody cares, you know, like, so, so let's just, let's just maintain them from now on. You're putting far too much effort into these things to, uh, (laughs) yes, they grew, but it didn't matter, you know? So your calves went from bad to average and it's not going to impact your physique enough. Unless you're facing a clone of yourself who hasn't trained calves, it's not going to be the difference. (laughs) So move on, Eric. Um, it was kind of the feedback I got. Um, but it was like, Hey, what you did for your lats and your delts worked, but now we're going to do like a full body specialization. So for the first time I need to bring up my legs. And some of the things we noticed is that my glutes actually were bigger in my 2011, 2012 era. Like I looked at my stage shots, even though my physique is far better now, my glutes in 2011 were bigger. So I think there was some atrophy from... Uh, my surgery and then kind of moving into, um, you know, what I could do, like, cause I was always able to find a way to trade my hamstrings and quads around my hip injury, but getting, obviously if you have FAI and you can't get into deep hip flexion, that's going to impact your main hip extensor. Right. And that was the case. Um, um, so, and even my wife noticed, so, and, and you know, when your wife tells you you're about smaller, it's, 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 that's some, some good feedback of people who have intimate knowledge of your glute musculature. Right. So, um, I could see it on stage and, um, overall, like, I don't think my quads or my hamstrings are holding me back, but I would now benefit from them being larger, much like my whole upper body. So uh, for the first time in like 11 years, I'm going to have actual leg days. Um, so my split moving forward, what I'm doing, it's a five day split and I have chest, back and shoulders on day one. I have legs and arms on day two. Uh, take a day off, and then I have uh, upper body on day three, which is uh, Thursday after a Wednesday off day. Then I have a dedicated leg day on Fridays, 
just legs. And then my last day of the week is uh, shoulders and arms, dominant upper body day. So it's still very, very upper body dominant. But for the first time, I'm actually trying to grow my legs. So I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not expecting it, but I wouldn't be surprised, Bill, that my stage weight might go up. Mm. Because for the first time, I'm like, I'm, you know, if you, you spend a whole year trying to add to your medial delts, like what, like what, 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 I mean, come on, you know, you're going to add 100 grams of tissue, right? But if you're trying to grow your glutes, your quads, and your hamstrings, that's like 50% of the muscle mass in your body. And if you've been intentionally not training them for over a decade, I feel like there's some unlocked gains there. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful that with this approach, um, we're going to see some substantial physique improvements, just given my training history, the fact that I haven't specialized and gone all in on bodybuilding, that I'm removing some of those kind of uh, high fatigue to stimulus ratio exercises, not needing to walk out 400 plus pounds regularly on my back per week or pulling over 500 pounds and having to get psyched up for that and then doing the rest of a, uh, you know, an upper body or, or lower body day afterwards. Um, and just getting the opportunity to have, you know, less joint pain, less load and still be able to put a lot of volume into my legs. I've, I've probably doubled my volume in my lower body. from just a pure sets perspective. But my recovery is, it hasn't been much worse because I'm not getting all that volume through deadlifts and squats. I'm getting it through hack squats, leg press, Bulgarian split squats, back extension, leg extension, leg curl. Um, and you can just sustain so much more work and effort there um, and get so much less joint stress and psychological stress <laughs> from, mm. from, from doing that and not having to do heavy doubles or triples or singles. Yeah, that's exciting. I think that it's refreshing, you know, hearing that you're coming at things with a whole new lens and a new game plan. In terms of, yeah, like the ultimate perspective, you're, you know, advanced athlete at this point, 40. At what point do you see yourself, I guess, reaching your your ultimate potential, I suppose? It's a good question. Well, I'll tell you this much. Uh, Jeff Alberts just hit his peak all-time best stage presentation at 52. Yeah, that's crazy. And, uh, you know, he he was he can legitimately say that he was the best American lightweight in 2023. Um, there were 16, the biggest class we've ever seen in the pro lightweight division at WBF Worlds, 16 in the class. And the top five, uh, true international representation, which is pretty cool to see, Number one was Dirk Emmerich from Germany. Shout out 3DMJ. Just got to give him some love. But, um, you know, second was from Ukraine. I believe uh, third was from uh, Spain. I think fourth was Poland. And then fifth was U.S. That was Jeff Alberts at the age of 52, you know. So, you know, me placing top five in a, in a field of nine middleweights is great. And that would be amazing. And that would be a, a huge stretch for me and it would be like the ultimate achievement that I never thought I would get placing top five in those lightweights though boy that's something different man like placing top 10 is an accomplishment out of 16 pros so anyway for Jeff to place top five and to be in the leanest condition I've ever seen him and the most balanced at the age of 52 is just incredibly impressive so it was truly his best ever you know I I was getting pissed at him because he kept saying pretty good for a 52 year old and I was like Jeff I saw you compete when you were 38. I've been on stage with you. You would have crushed your 38-year-old self. 
Hmm. And I saw you at WBF Worlds when you placed fourth in the middleweights. And this guy would have beat that guy. Like, this is a, this is just your best. And you happen to be in a more competitive field. And he didn't believe me until he saw the picture. So then he was like, oh, shit, you're right. This is my best ever. So I don't know if he's necessarily had his muscular potential peak. He probably has been there previously. But the best combination of all the things, like his presentation, his leanness, his preservation of muscle on the diet, his peak, um, and all of the things together, he was at his best. And that's a cool thing of competitive bodybuilding. You know, the average person who's into non-competitive natural bodybuilding is just thinking about, like, what's my muscular potential? But competitive potential is a little bit different because there's more mm-hmm. things that go into it. How much can you preserve? How well do you diet? Uh, do you get your color right? You're posing. And there's an art and a skill and a science to all of those things. So I don't think I'm at my natural muscular potential. Nor do I think I'm at my competitive potential. And even if my natural muscle potential hits sometimes in my mid-40s, I think I could still get better in terms of finding that best combination of presentation and leanness. But um, I will say, man, I would not be surprised if I couldn't make substantial visual improvements to at least my lower body. Because I just haven't been trying. I literally haven't been trying for a decade. You know, Absolutely. like I'm just going in there and, you know, squatting up to a single and and when i'm doing a powerlifting meets doing enough to get stronger but even powerlifters who have huge squats and deadlifts when they shift towards bodybuilding and i've seen it many times they start to make improvements to aspects of their legs maybe not like their vastus lateralis or their glutes but you start to see hamstring improvements you start to see uh, leg improvements there's a little more symmetrical symmetrical development so um I think that I can probably make very noticeable visual changes in the next couple of years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what that's going to amount to, but that's part of the fun is I don't know what the limit is. You know, I've, I've made changes to my physique that I never thought I would achieve. 2019 is when I, like, you know, in the movies, like, oh, he's starting to believe, you know, like, the Matrix <laughs> or whatever. 2019 was the start of that. Um, when I saw the pictures of myself when I did the homage to Frank Zane, I was like, oh, shit. Like, I always thought I had shitty structure and two narrow clavicles to make my waist look wide and couldn't develop my upper body. And I was like, that is a downright aesthetic-looking physique, and that's, that's me? I couldn't fathom it, you know? And once I finally fully embraced and took on that I was a pretty damn good amateur bodybuilder in 2019, I went, well, then maybe I can get my pro card, you know? And to achieve that and to see myself on stage and to look at my stage pictures this year and just to be like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that's me. I can't believe I've achieved this Um, and that I belonged on the pro middleweight world stage. That that was where I was. I was competitive, not necessarily the top, but seventh out of ninth. You know, I I can legitimately say and it's not bullshit. Like I was seventh in the world in the the, the middleweights, natural bodybuilding this year. Like, what is that like? To this guy who had insecurity and doubt as to what I could accomplish, that is still mind-blowing. So the beauty of it is I don't know what my potential is. I, sh- I sold myself short previously. And now that I'm not, I feel like a lot the, the, the brakes are off. Like I'm ready to rock. Um, I have been loving every opportunity I get to go to in the gym. And I tell you what, performance is skyrocketing. I actually hit a equal lifetime PR on RDLs last week. And I'm like... At, at like 20 pounds lighter than when I did it last time, mm. you know? So um, let's just say I'm motivated, Bill. Yeah, 
I'm stoked for you. I mean, from my perspective, I think that you're underselling yourself, you know, all this time and that this is this is just desserts, man. This is it's killing season. It's Eric's season. So Let's this go. has been awesome, man. I'm excited to document the improvement season as you go through this because it's going to be a masterclass in training and nutrition and all that bodybuilding stuff. So we'll be keeping track of Eric's progress and where can people find you? Dude, you can find me. I think the best for, for this interview, you want to check out 3dmusclejourney.com and definitely click on the link to the YouTube. Uh, so youtube.com slash team 3dmj. The first episode of Believe 2024 is up, where the uh, four coaches gave feedback on my physique. And this is where the whole <laughs> full body specialization program came from. Basically get bigger everywhere. Um, and the next episode I'm currently editing, uh, I did a full consultation with Brian, just like one of our clients would, who signed up for coaching at 3DMJ. We're, we're doing it the same way. I've got a spreadsheet. Brian's my coach. I DM him. I'm tracking my weight, I am tracking my training, and um, I'm sending him videos, I'm accumulating training footage, and we're gonna have a regular vlog uh, that are that's me getting coached by Brian through my off-season as my first pro off-season, um, where it is about believing that in 2024 I could make substantial changes like we talked about. And um, this is gonna keep me accountable, and hopefully it's gonna prove educational, inspirational to others. Uh, that would be just, I, I want to be able to give back because I've gotten so much from the sport and I hope I can do that through that series. Excited for that. I'll put the links in the description below and catch you next time, Eric. Thanks, buddy.